Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of The Casual Criminalist. As always, I'm your host, Simon. Welcome, welcome. I was here. One of my writers in this case, Matt. Thank you, Matt. Matt G. This is Matt Grander. There's, there's a couple of Matts. So I give them the, the surname initial, like you're at school. Uh, this is all about the 1976 Chow Chiller kidnapping. So let's jump in, shall we? Format of the show. I've never read this before. We're going to learn it. Learn it. We're going to explore it together. Learn is like, oh, God, we're going to learn something. All right, I'm going to go to school now. Please, no. <laughs> Just want to be entertained, Simon. Come on. Ah, school. The bane of all children. I mean, speaking of not wanting to learn things, as well as teenagers and many adults the world over. We all remember the horrors of school, the numerous terrible teachers, the difficult papers and assignments, the horrendous school lunches, the bullies who had nothing better to do than make our lives a living hell. Now, of course, there are some things that made school a good time. The many friends we made along the way, the few good teachers who actually knew what they were doing and were kind to the students, and the extracurricular activities that brought us joy. I quite liked school. Like... Yeah, of course there was stuff I didn't like about school. <laughs> like some subjects that you're forced to do. You're like, oh, why well, don't like this? Why do I need to learn maths? It's not yet, I've got... Don't ever have a calculator in your pocket. Au contraire, 1990s maths teacher. Au contraire. I have been touched by your kids. And I'm pretty sure I've touched them. Hell, as awkward and sometimes as awful as school was, I still have so many of the friends that I made back then to this day, and I still cherish the memories I have at the time spent on the stage crew for the school plays and musicals. Ah, me too. I mean, I, I like school plays and musicals. Like, I'm, I'm pretty bad at singing, so I didn't really feature very much in the musicals. But theatre was my jam. Like, I just, I think I just got into that in secondary school and just never stopped being into it and then did a little bit of university and then did nothing with it ever again but i loved theater and then i got a scholarship like i went to a, a, a school we had to pay for it but then a bit of the way through got a scholarship which i'm sure my parents appreciated <laughs> However, there is certainly one thing we can all remember about school, and that's the school bus. The large and long yellow vehicle that came for us every single morning to ferry to our respective learning institutions, and of course pissed off all the drivers at every stop with their stop signs and flashing stoplights. Yeah, no, we don't have that in the UK. We don't, like, I've been on an American school bus. You would never guess where I've been on an American school bus. In Guatemala. Like, I went to Guatemala. All of their buses are like old American school buses. And they've not been adjusted, so they have these tiny ass seats. And you like you go in there, there's no seat belts, there's no like headrest, there's just barely any leg room at all, and you're just crammed into this like weird old American school bus, which still says like, you know, Dade County or whatever. I feel like I only know that from CSI Miami. But like or County Dade? What was it where they had CSI Miami? Dade County. But like written down the side of the buses that's kind of been roughly painted over in a yellow that's sort of the same colour. So if you're wondering, Americans, that's where your old school buses go. Guatemala. <laughs> it was really bizarre. Sometimes the trips were pleasant, sometimes they were annoying, but it's all something we put up with, and it's something we all remember. So, what if I told you that one morning, so everything went terribly wrong? That someone would stop the bus and take all the children hostage, scarring them for life from that point forward? That doesn't sound like it's going to end very well for you. That sounds like exactly the sort of thing. I mean, there's lots of windows on that school bus, no? Aren't SWAT going to arrive and be like, do it like in the movies? You if you got a clear shot, take it. And then someone's like, I have the shot. And then the shooter's like taken out, and that's the end of it. And that's not the end of it because we got like nine more pages to go. But let's see what happens, shall we? Have you guys? Do you guys know this one? I've never heard of the Chow Chiller kidnapping. I heard Chow Chiller, and I was like, oh, like Chihuahua, or like 
it, it sounds like Mexican. Well, everyone, that's the exact situation that we're here to discuss today, when in the summer of 1976, the lives of an entire bus full of children and the bus driver were changed forever when they were all taken prisoner by a group of vile men, all for the sake of money and enjoyment. Wait, who's? It's like, I understand crime. Like, because crime pays. Like, if you're like, yeah, yeah, I'm going to do some crime, what are you going to do? I'm going to kidnap a bus full of school children. And it's like, why are you doing that? Well, money. And if the answer's enjoyment, then it's like, that's that's way more f***ed up. I mean, it's f***ed up. You're kidnapping children. But, like, it's way more f***ed up if you enjoy that. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> Rather than just being like, no, nah, I'm in it for the money. It's like, I'm in it for the money. And uh, just, just like it. I just like it. <laughs> it's an incident that put an entire town into a state of panic and fury that had them fearing for the lives of the vanished children and driver and the extreme anger they felt towards the men who did this terrible thing. Does it turn out all right, or do we have another tragedy on our hands? Hands stained with the blood of a bus full of innocent kids. I feel that if that was the case, if in 1976 an entire bus of schoolchildren was murdered, I feel like I would n know about. I know it's, it was a long time ago. What was that like? 50 years ago, nearly. But I still feel like that would be something like you know about um, you know Jim Jones and the People's Temple and oh what's that one with Timothy McVeigh? Who blew up that building? Oklahoma bombing. It's like these are big casualty events. Like that you just like the Madrid train bombing and stuff. No, it didn't happen in my country, but it was big news. It's a big part of history. Well, that's what we're here today to discuss as we talk about what is believed to be the single biggest kidnapping in United States history. As the darkness, well, if it was the biggest mass murder in United Well, no, it wouldn't be, would it? So, I still don't know the answer. As the darkness begins creeping in on us again, join me as we discuss the insane case of the 1976 Chowchilla bus kidnapping. Just before we continue with the episode today, if I asked you how many subscriptions you had, would you be able to list all of them and how much you're paying? Look, I definitely wouldn't. I don't even know. It's kind of like a mystery. Just money gets taken out of my bank accounts and services are provided. I'm like, am I still using them? I don't know. Do I keep paying for them? Yes. Should I? Absolutely not. And that's where today's sponsor, Rocket Money, comes in. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions. It monitors your spending, and of course, it helps you lower your bills. You can see all of your subscriptions in one place, and then you can be like, oh, that one, what is that? I don't want it. And then you just tap on it, and boom, it's cancelled. You never have to get on the phone with customer service, which is wonderful because nobody ever wants to get on the phone with customer service. Rocket Money have over 5 million users, and they've helped save its members an average of $720 a year, which is outrageous. That's the average. That's not some outlier. That's the average people save, which is insane. With over $500 million in cancelled subscriptions. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash casual. That's rocketmoney.com slash casual. Rocketmoney.com slash casual. Thanks to them for sponsoring. And now back to today's episode. Bus Ride of Fear It was just a normal day. In the summer of 1976, though that always just seems to be the case, doesn't it? We go about our lives, keep to our routines, and without the worry that something unexpected or, God forbid, terrible is about to happen. This was the case for one 55-year-old Frank Edward Ed Ray, just a normal bus driver going about his day, just another day on the job. He loved to work. He was happiest when he was busiest, whether it was on his ranch doing hard outdoor work or driving around the young ones of the town in his big yellow school bus, enjoying what he considered to be his downtime. Ed was very patient, a caring man, and more than anything, he loved kids, hence why he took the job as a bus driver. 
It was Thursday, July the 15th, 1976, in Chowchilla, California, and Ed had pulled up to a summer camp, opening the door for his little passengers. That day, 26 students of Dairyland Elementary School, all between ages of 5 and 14, had spent a wonderful day at the Chowchilla Fairgrounds swimming pool for a summer class trip. It sounds like a great time for the kids, having fun with their friends and splashing around in a large pool together on a hot, sunny day. It's the type of day we all experienced at least once, a day to remember from our childhood. I don't really remember anything like that. I guess I could if I tried, but it's not like there's one amazing day from my childhood where we were this amazing. We went on some cool school trips, but it's like none of them particularly stick out as well. that was the one. All the wasted years. <laughs> Sadly, this day would stay with these kids forever for an entirely different and traumatizing reason. The parents of the children, 19 girls and 7 boys, waited patiently for the bus, waiting for their kids to come home, all smiles, all laughs, happy with their day and excited to tell their parents what they'd been up to. Only the bus never arrived. Minutes became hours, and the bus was nowhere to be seen. The parents began to panic, and the police were called. Teams were set up. The search was well and truly on. The bad news broke into the media, and soon the whole country was invested in the story of an entire bus full of children gone missing. The entire nation was scared, everyone thinking of the children and the driver. But exactly what had happened? Oh, I see. For some reason, you know, I talked about the sniper at the beginning, like taking out the person. I didn't realize that they were literally just going to drive the bus away. I have the shot. I assumed it would be a situation of everyone get on the ground stop the bus because they just got on the bus and drove it away that's nuts at around 4 p.m that afternoon the school bus was driving along a country road in maria county ed drove along without a worry in the world and the children were talking and laughing still buzzing after their day at the pool out of nowhere a white 1971 dodge van drove up and stopped in the middle of the road blocking it Ed hit the brakes, bringing the bus to a screeching halt. Confused and infuriated, Ed exited the bus, fully intending to confront the driver of the van, wanting to know what the hell they were doing. But then Ed came to a stop, and fear clamped its hand around Ed's heart. Three men, dressed in overalls, their heads covered in nylon stockings, emerged from the van, their hands gripping sawed-off shotguns. One of the men held Ed at gunpoint and forced him and the kids back in the bus. Jodie Heffington was just 10 years old at the time of the kidnapping, and years later, this year in fact, she recounted the events on the show 48 hours for an interview. I'm going to guess that this year is 2023, not 2024 when I'm actually recording this, because I am so... I, I think I genuine, genuinely have about 150,000 words worth of casual criminalist episodes that have been written to me, for me, and I'm just slowly chewing my way through because I'm so behind. That's exhausting. Being this vigilant. <laughs> it's kind of daunting. That's like two long books <laughs> worth of casual criminalists just sitting in my. We use a project management tool called Trello, just sitting there waiting for me to read through. And it's like, I look forward to it. Like, genuinely, like, this is some of the most fun stuff that I. It's obviously not fun. We're talking about a bus full of school children being kidnapped. But just getting able, being able to read this stuff as a job <laughs> and, like, talk about it, it's pretty good. The quote goes And this man came up with a stocking over his head with a gun and said, Open the door. I've never been around guns. You only see bad guys in the movies with stockings on, so I know it wasn't good. He held a shotgun to my stomach. I thought he was going to shoot me. The quote ends. With Ed and the kids frozen in fear, the first man got behind the wheel. The third man returned to the van and prepared to follow behind the hijacked bus. Amid the sound of crying children, the kidnappers drove the bus to Berenda Slough, a shallow, dried-out branch of the Chowchilla River surrounded by bamboo and tall brush. There, they ordered Ed and the children off the bus before they ditched and hid the yellow vehicle. Along Another van was waiting for them, and the armed gunmen forced Ed and the children to split up into two groups, forcing them into the two vans, taking off into the night. 
The windows were all painted black, and the interiors were lined with wood paneling so none of the hostages could see where they were going, and they couldn't be heard from outside the vans. What came next was 11 hours and 110 miles of fear and uncertainty, with none of them knowing why this was happening or even if they'd make it out of the situation alive since their kidnappers gave no indication of their end goal or intentions. In the words of Larry Park, who was six years old at the time, where their eyes were, it almost looked hollow. It was like looking at death. At around 5 a.m. the next morning, the vans finally came to a stop. They'd arrived at the destination, an isolated rock quarry in the town of Livermore, California. How did it take? They drove 110 miles in 11 hours? <laughs> what, you drive it like, just out walking base? <laughs> the armed gunmen then forced Ed and the children to climb out of the vans one by one. Jodie Heffington remembered the thoughts she had at the time, and they filled her with even more dread. They'd take the next kid out, and they'd close the doors. But when they open the doors, you don't see them. I thought they were basically killing us, one at a time. I, look, you're how old? Like, super young. I doesn't say, but let's say she was 10 years old or whatever. You could think that's a 10 year old. As an adult, I think I'd be like, well, they're not just killing us randomly. They obviously want something. It's three dudes. It's not just one psycho. And they've got the the masks on over their faces. So it's like they don't want to kill us because otherwise they'd just be like showing us their faces and then they'd kill us. So that's a good sign. But even still, I'd be like, oh, you're going to kill me. <laughs> oh, no. One after another, each at gunpoint, the captives were then forced down a ladder to the quarry uh, where something was waiting for them, a makeshift bunker. In reality, it was an old moving truck that the villains had buried 12 feet underground and had stocked with a limited supply of food, such as bread and peanut butter, as well as water, fans, a few mattresses, and limited air. The men had cut a hole in the top for easy entry, but the rest of the truck was buried underneath dirt and rock. Once the final hostage had been forced down into the ground, the men put a heavy piece of metal and two 100-pound industrial batteries on top of the small entry point and then covered that with dirt, sealing the kidnapped Ed and 26 children inside, plunging their hostages into utter darkness before they left. Ed did not expect his day to go this way. <laughs> I mean, neither did the children, but Ed suddenly like, oh no, now I'm, I'm, the, I'm the adult here. It's, it's on me. I've got to like sort this out. I just want to be a bus driver in a rancher. Why? Ed and the children were terrified. They were alone and they were in there for 16 whole hours. Escaping the dark. So... What do we have here? We have a completely sealed up moving truck, buried underground, filled with an older man and 26 children, all crammed together and buried alive with a gradually depleting air supply and total darkness. If that isn't the very definition of ligophobia and claustrophobia, I don't know what is. I don't even know what ligophobia is. Let's look it up. Ligophobia. Fear of the dark. Okay, there you go. That's ligophobia for you. Learn something new. Unfortunately, our genius kidnappers didn't really think things through with regards to their little makeshift bunker. The fans inside the truck stopped working almost instantly. The roof was quickly starting to cave in under the weight of the dirt, metal, and batteries, and the air supply, which had been very limited from the get-go, was depleting moment by moment with the screaming and crying of the panicked children. Normally, this is where things would end tragically, with the death of all trapped within the truck. Thankfully, however, there were two certified legends in that makeshift cell. The aforementioned driver, Ed Ray, and 14-year-old Michael Marshall. Ed knew that he had to help the kids. He was the adult, and they were his charges, his kids, and he had to get them out of there. Michael was one of the oldest of the children, and he was as determined to save himself and the other kids as Ed was. So together, they got to work. They rallied the rest of the children, calmed them down, and then began to work together to get out of there. Jennifer Brown Hyde, who was nine at the time of the incident, recalls what Ed and Michael told them at the time. If we are going to die, we're going to die trying to get out of here. Pretty soon, 
The captives made a discovery. By stacking up all the mattresses inside the truck, they were able to reach the ceiling. Then Michael and Ed climbed up, and using a piece of wood they found inside the truck, they tried to wedge it into the opening of the ceiling. It took them hours, but they managed to do it, finally managing to lift the metal cover and the batteries out of the way. And from there, Michael started to dig. To quote Larry Park, He dug until he was exhausted, and then he kept on digging. There was no quit in him. Hour after hour, Michael continued to dig, determined to save not only himself, but Ed and the other children as well. Then finally, after 16 hours had passed since their imprisonment began, the dirt gave way and light poured into the truck. Sticking his head out to make sure their captors weren't anywhere nearby, Michael crawled his way out, followed by Ed. Then, together, they managed to get all the children out of the darkness and to freedom. They'd managed to survive. They'd managed to escape. They'd been saved. And they did it all themselves. <laughs> this is a terrible kidnapping plan. <laughs> it's like quite elaborate, but also like really they just they just managed to escape from your trap. You couldn't have used a padlock or something, like literally anything to keep them in there other than like wait. Moving as quickly as possible, Ed, Michael, and the kids hurried to the security shack at the quarry and told the shocked guards what had happened. To say the guards were flabbergasted was an understatement. Yeah, no it's like yeah, yeah, yeah. There were thirty kids buried in a truck here. You'd be like, you what? <laughs> Excuse me, come again? I am so fired. The live burial of almost 30 kidnapped people had happened right under their noses, not exactly something that occurs every day. The police were called, and pretty soon, the quarry was filled with police officers. Ed and all the children were taken in and brought to the closest facility in the area for safekeeping, which just happened to be the Santa Rita Rehabilitation Center. There they were questioned for hours on end, asked about what had happened to them, asked about the men who had done this, and only after the police were satisfied that they'd gotten enough information were all of the hostages finally allowed to return home. I can only imagine the relief and the joy that washed over every single parent as they saw their children once more. For more than a day, they'd been held hostage. For almost 28 hours, all those parents thought that there was a chance that they'd never get to see their children again, to hug them, to kiss them, to tell them they loved them. And now they had that chance, and their children were welcomed home with open arms and lots of happy tears. The horror that had the entire town and every parent of Chowchilla in a stranglehold was over. Almost. Three idiots. So, would you look at that, Simon? A story involving kids on the channel that doesn't end in bloodshed. Yes, it's very nice. I'm happy. I'm happy this is why I haven't heard of it, because it was just a bungle kidnapping that went wrong, and they escaped. And that's nice. A nice change of pace, if you ask me. The kids were safe, Ed was safe, and all seemed right in the world at that moment. The only thing that needs to go righter is for these three clowns who tried to pull off this kidnapping just to go for to prison for a really long time. Like, I'm thinking like 20 years. 15, 20 years seems about right for this. There was, though, one thing yet to be solved. Who the f did this? Who were the three bastards who started this whole mess and sent the whole town into a tailspin of fear and worry? The short answer's a bunch of idiots. Now, first of all, let's talk about what their plan had been. After they buried Ed and the children, the three men had plans on waiting until dark before they would phone the Chowchilla Police Department with their demands. A ransom of $5 million, equivalent to $25.7 million in 2023, for the safe return of Ed and the children. A heavy chunk of change, but we'll get into it in a moment about why that was insanely dumb of them. They would also then demand the ransom money should be dropped from a plane into the Santa Cruz Mountains at night. And once that was done, they'd retrieve it from the landing spot under the cover of darkness, apparently thinking that not only would this have been accepted, but that the police wouldn't have multiple units combing the area looking for the kidnappers as soon as they had a location. Yes, this is real. Yes, they were that dumb. <laughs> when they finally sat down to make the call, they immediately encountered a problem. You see, because a bus full of children had gone missing, the telephone lines to the Chowchilla Police Department were jammed completely. The parents of Chowchilla were in a frenzy, looking for any sort of answers. 
the media were being their usual annoying selves, looking for any and all information to use as a scoop for the news updates. But by this point, the story was nationwide news, and thousands of people called in to provide the police with tips regarding where they could find the missing kids. Because of this, the kidnappers weren't able to contact the police with their demands. No matter though, right? They simply decided to wait a little longer and then call back later. Now, two things here. First of all, not only were all their victims still trapped and running out of air as they waited to make their precious ransom call, but the morons couldn't even stay awake long enough to make it. Yep, you read that right. The three kidnappers actually fell asleep while waiting to make their ransom call, and while they were passed out, the hostages managed to free themselves and were returned safely to their loved ones. <laughs> Can you imagine? How could you possibly take a nap? It's like, no, I'm going to bed. It's like, yeah, but we've got this massive hostage situation going on. You don't want to wait up. And it's like, bro, I need my beauty sleep, dude. You stay up if you want to. It's like, I don't want to stay up. And then they all just go to bed. Like, what's going on? So when these three geniuses finally woke up, they flipped on the news and got to witness the news reports of the free children in real time. All that hard work, all that planning, and now they were forced to watch as their precious scheme was flushed down the toilet. Brilliant, isn't it? The police weren't too sure where to start their investigation, but with the kidnapping of this magnitude, the FBI was on the case in a flash. Uh-oh. <laughs> it's like when you're just like, oh yeah, local police. Like if I know anything from movies, it's like, yeah, local police. It's like they're gonna they're gonna do something, they're they they I guess they're they're okay. But the FBI come on the scene, it's like, uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> These guys are like the big boys. They dug out the truck from the quarry, trying to find any sort of clue, and they found out that the truck had been buried and concealed there for eight whole months before the plan was enacted. They then figured out the best place to start their investigation would be with the people who owned the quarry. The quarry was owned by a company by the name of California Rock and Gravel, and said company was owned by the Woods family and was managed by Frederick Nickerson Woods III, who himself was questioned, scrutinized, but ultimately cleared of suspicion in the case. But Frederick had a son, 24-year-old Frederick Newhall Woods IV, Fourth, who had keys to the quarry, unlimited access, and free use of the facilities. Did this all seem like a coincidence at the moment? Of course, but it was enough. The FBI was able to get a warrant to search Hawthorne, the 78-acre property in Portola Valley, California, which was owned by the Woods family. Frederick had absolutely nothing to hide, but Fred sure did, and of course, at the time of the police search, he was nowhere in sight. Going directly to Fred's room, the authorities, the mother load, journals, a draft of the ransom note, maps, notes, plans, receipts for the vans and trailer, false identifications, one of the guns used in the kidnapping, the jack-in-the-box hamburger wrapper on which the kidnappers had written the names and ages of each kidnapped child. <laughs> Bro, you're taking writing down your crimes to some next-level sh** right now. They even found a rental contract for a storage facility where they found the vans used in the kidnapping and a potential getaway car, a Cadillac. All of this was found in plain sight in Fred's bedroom, and at this point, me, Simon, the audience, and the whole world may want to collectively faceplan. It takes writing down your crimes to the next level. Yes, it does. I agree. Luckily, the idiot couldn't be asked to find a place to dump the kids that wasn't directly connected to him. Oh, and would you know, but old Fred the Fourth had two best friends, brothers, 24-year-old James and 22-year-old Richard Schoenfeld, who he was close to. And speaking of the brothers, both of them had been previously convicted of motor vehicle theft, but had only been sentenced to probation. And wouldn't you know, they both seemed to have up and disappeared around the same time as well. Coincidence? I think not. With all this new concrete evidence and the failed plan literally written out for them, the police and the FBI issued arrest warrants for all three men. 
They had their suspects, and they were ready to pull out all the stops, uh, a nationwide manhunt if they had to, to track these dumbasses down. Thankfully, they didn't have to spend much time on it. Only eight days after the kidnapping took place, Richard Schoenfeld, the youngest of the three, turned himself into the police in Oakland, wishing for the madness to end, and he was held in custody with a $1 million bail. And it didn't take long for the others to get caught either, as a few days later, on July the 29th, James Schoenfeld was arrested in Menlo Park in San Francisco, California. Fred had actually made it pretty far in his escape, fast-tracking it past the Canadian border after his discovered the jig was up. But he too was arrested, coincidentally the same day as James, by the RCMP in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada, after an all-points bulletin alert was sent out across the US and Canada to keep an eye out for him. What are you doing? <laughs> if it's like, if you're going to flee the country, don't go to Canada. Have you not seen movies? You have to go to Mexico. <laughs> They're going to be less cooperative. Like Canada, they'll just be like, America, we got you. We got you. Mexico, you'll be like, you never know what happens is Mexico. <laughs> Go to Mexico. Who is this crazy gringo and what is he talking about? But the question remains, why did these three numbskulls need the money? Why did they do this? We touched on Fred and his family before, but James and Richard also came from a very rich and influential family since they were the sons of a wealthy podiatrist. Is a podiatrist a foot doctor? Look up. I think it's a foot doctor. Podiatrist. Medical professional dedicated to the treatment of disorders of the foot. There you go. Big brain. They had money. Real, legit family money. So why? Simply, they just wanted more money. That's right, these three bumbling buffoons had screwed themselves over, done all of this for nothing, and dragged themselves and their families through the mud, all for greed. Misplaced and unearned greed from the already filthy rich. When asked about why he did what he did, and why they specifically targeted a bus full of kids, James didn't hold back to quote, We needed multiple victims to get multiple millions, and we picked children because they are precious. The state would be willing to pay ransom for them, and they don't fight back. They're vulnerable. They will mind. Absolute idiots. I mean, yes, I agree, these guys are idiots. They're terrible at crimes. However, there is there's a fair point there, isn't it? Like, kids are more precious, and they don't fight back, or at least if they do, they're, they're, they're small. So it's going to be easier to keep them in line. That's not bad logic. It's just that the rest of the crime was horrifically bungled and shit. Trial and Aftermath all three men were kept in custody for months awaiting their trial, but where exactly would their trial take place? It was believed, and rightfully so, I'd say, that there'd be no chance of a fair and unbiased trial should Woods and the Schoenfelds be tried in Chowchilla. It wasn't until November that it was decided that the trial for the three would be moved out of Madeira County, and that Alameda County, which is 150 miles away, would host the case. However, they might as well have not bothered. On July the 25th, 1977, a year after the kidnapping took place, Fred Woods, Richard Schoenfeld, and James Schoenfeld all stood before a judge. The mountain of evidence was as tall as Everest, and they knew that their goose was cooked no matter what sort of defense they pulled out of their ass. And so, they didn't bother at all. All three men pled guilty to 27 counts of kidnapping for ransom, with 18 other charges of robbery being dropped in exchange. Now for the sentencing, and this is where it got a little bit muggy. Both the kidnapping and robbery charges, along with additional charges of bodily harm, would have landed all three men in prison for the rest of their lives without the chance of parole. However, given that they pled guilty to the kidnapping, the robbery charges were dropped, and Woods and the Schoenfelds were all sentenced to life in prison, but with the possibility of parole. So, what does that mean? It meant that every year or two, these morons were up for parole, and with each and every hearing, the victims had to be brought to hear it, to testify again, and each time to relive the horror of the event that had scarred their lives. So from childhood until their adult years, many of those kids had to experience the trauma all over again. Jill Klinger, an assistant district attorney for Alameda County, told 48 Hours, quote, Every time one of the kidnappers came up for parole, it triggered their fears and traumas. 
The events of the kidnapping, regardless of the parole hearings, changed the lives of all those children. Nearly each and every one of them was affected negatively by what happened to them, and no amount of therapy would make it all just go away. From nightmares about kidnapping and death to lifelong panic attacks, from personality changes to fears of things such as cars and the dark, it was a struggle for all of them. Many of them fell into depression, many of them turned to drugs and alcohol, and some even had issues with the law, ending up behind bars themselves. It's impossible not to feel horrible for them. They never asked for this. It shouldn't have happened. And these greedy fools just took their childhoods, and for many, their adulthoods as well. In the words of Jodie Heffington, who I'll inform you sadly passed away back in January 2021 at the age of 55, quote, Nothing was ever the same. Nothing was ever the same after that. I think it made me a not a good daughter, not a good sister, not a good aunt, and especially not a good mother. I try to be those things. But it seems like it just took something from me that I can't ever get back, and I can't tear down, no matter how hard I try, and no matter what I do. And so what of our three brain-dead antagonists? Where are they now? Well, uh, it's my unfortunate duty to inform you that they're all free as birds. Yes, all three of them eventually received parole, even when it's clear that they very much shouldn't have. In July of 2012, Richard Schoenfeld was paroled at the age of 57 after serving 36 years in prison. And in August of 2015, James Schoenfeld was paroled at the age of 63 after serving 39 years behind bars. These are very long sentences. But no one died. And yeah, it's bad. But life without parole for this, I don't feel would have been fair. And that leaves good old Fred, the de facto ringleader of the whole fiasco. Well, I can say that he served a few extra years in prison, mostly due to his own stupidity, which shocks no one, I'm sure. Over the many years he served, his behavior was that of an insufferable prick while in prison, and the entire time he attempted to minimize his crimes, acting as if what he did wasn't that bad. On top of it, he was constantly caught up in possession of contraband like pornography and cell phones, which he obviously wasn't supposed to have. And finally, it was discovered he was running a gold mining business and a car dealership from beyond behind bars without telling the prison what how that yutz was able to get away with all of that when he clearly lacked any sort of mental capacity is beyond me hell the businesses were only discovered when a workers compensation lawsuit was filed against him you've been served you're getting the subpoena served to you in prison and the prison's like what the f bro you got a business <laughs> However, all good things must come to an end. And so Fred himself was paroled as well. Governor Gavin Newsom tried to block Woods' release, but it was all in vain. And Fred Woods was paroled in August 2022 at the age of 70. The real kicker? The son of a bitch inherited a trust fund reportedly worth $100 million while he was in prison. Oh my god, when you said his family had money, you meant he had money! And so once he got out, not only was he still wealthy as hell, but he bought a mansion a short distance away from the prison while inside, so he had a nice, lovely, giant home to come out to. Sometimes life just isn't fair. Yeah, but he did spend like 40 years in prison. So uh, that's, that's, that's a long, that's four decades. That's longer than I've been alive. Wrap-ups. And just like that, our stories at an end, with the trauma of the victims and the eventual freedom of the villains. This story has been covered all over the internet over the years, including here on YouTube from the likes of that chapter and Anna Solves. Hell, I'd fully admit that I hadn't even heard of this dark endeavor until I watched other videos on it, so I figured I might as well give it a shot, bringing it to our audience in our own casual criminalist way. <laughs> Alright, casual. Those channels are so serious. And here it's like, yeah! Hey, crimes! Which I don't know why this works. You need help. 
This is this isn't the evilest topic we've covered here on this channel. It isn't even the worst case I've written about for this show, not by a long shot, but it is one of the ones that makes me the most angry. These three selfish, greedy, stupid, rich douchebags had no right to do what they did. They didn't even have a true motive to do what they did, yet they did it, and they ruined the lives of 26 children in the process. Matt, I agree that what they did was terrible, but there's pe people go through plenty of traumas, and this is certainly not the worst trauma that people have gone through or that we've even covered on this channel by not by a long shot as you said and i don't think that these guys should have died in prison for this like i feel the sentences they got were quite fair if not long none of them were killed in this ridiculous plot but their innocence their sense of joy happiness and freedom were all stripped away from them in the most vicious way possible and again this feels a bit sweeping it's a bit like you're speaking for all 26 of them if i was one of these people i'd be like I don't know, I'd rather speak for myself and be like, no, it was bad, it was traumatic, but I'm sure some of them went on to have like relatively normal, unhappy lives, no? They weren't all ruined. With that said, though, I want to end this video on a bit of a high note. For that, I wish to look back at Ed Ray. This man was just a hard worker and a lover of children, and not once did he give up on saving them, and not once did he believe that he couldn't get them home safe, and between himself and Michael, they managed to do it. Because of his bravery and his heroism, he was awarded a California School Employees Association citation for outstanding community service, was hailed as a hero in Chowchilla, and he and the children were even given a parade in their honor afterwards. Ed passed away at the ripe old age of 91 on May the 17th, 2012, but before he died, he would receive regular visits from the children he saved that day, each of them expressing their love and gratitude for the man who gave them another chance to live. Then, in 2015, three years after his passing, the Sport and Leisure Park in Chowchilla was renamed the Edward Ray Park, and every February 26th was declared Edward Ray Day in Chowchilla. What a legend. May it rest in peace like the legend he was. May the children who still live today find some form of peace in the time that they had left. And may those who have passed on find peace they so desperately craved. And that is where we end today's relatively short episode of The Casual Criminalist. Thank you for being here. If you enjoyed this show, please leave us a review or a rating on Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. If you're watching on YouTube, smash that like button, subscribe, and I'll see you next time. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.